Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I remember when I first signed up for Facebook. It was around 2005 and I was a freshman at Brigham Young University. At first, I became Facebook friends with my five to 10 actual real friends. People I shared meals with, went to movies with, confided in. But pretty soon, I was friending lots of people. The guy who helped me out in math class, a cute girl I met once in the library, my second cousin. It was exciting. I had so many friends. But pretty soon, the timeline got bad. So many updates from people I barely knew. So many bad political opinions and so many food and baby photos. Too many friends. I started to think, maybe these 3,000 people on Facebook are not actually friends. The use of friendship for relationships on social media, like Facebook is, of course, the prime exhibit, um, has kind of maybe spawned more of an interest in sort of asking, you know, what is friendship actually? So my name is Katharina Volk, and I'm a professor of classics at Columbia University. I specialize in Latin literature and Roman culture. Over 2,000 years ago, ancient Roman statesman and philosopher Marcus Tullius Cicero asked the same question. In his philosophical dialogue on friendship, Cicero unpacks what it means to be a friend. I feel like in, um, in, in recent decades, there has been a sort of revival of interest, well, certainly in, in, in Cicero, but also in the topic of friendship. I understand that there's now, now something called friendship studies. I mean, there's, of course, like everything studies. Um, but, you know, you can now, um, you know, buy like readers um, on friendship, um, etc., um, which will feature this as one of the prime exhibits. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Katarina Volk to discuss Cicero's On Friendship. Cicero lived from 106 to 43 BC. He was born during the late Roman Republic. In the century before, Rome won a series of wars that gave them control over much of the Mediterranean region. Cicero grew up on the outskirts of Rome. Although he was somewhat isolated from the city, his father had good connections to the Roman government. Cicero was not um, a member, really, of the Roman urban elite. He came from a little town called Arpinum, where his family, you know, was very well placed and they were sort of local leaders, but he was a so-called new man at Rome, which meant that no one in his family had ever held public office or had been a member of the Senate at Rome. Still, Cicero wanted to go into politics. At the time, there was something called the Cursus Honorum. It was a series of public offices that would eventually lead to a seat in the Senate. It began with 10 years of military duty. 
Cicero began the Cursus Honorum, but he only lasted two years in the army. After he left, he looked for another path. He became a lawyer and started climbing the political ladder. And so he managed to um, basically, uh, you know, break into the uh, political scene at Rome. He was elected to all the offices. He entered the Senate. He became a consul. The consul of Rome was the highest elected political office in the Roman Republic and the final position in the Cursus Honorum. Every year, two consuls were elected to serve a one-year term. They were in charge of foreign affairs, the army, and the Senate. After his term as consul, Cicero was approached by the Roman general and statesman Julius Caesar. Caesar and fellow politicians Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, known as Pompey, and Marcus Licinius Crassus, known as Crassus, were constructing a secret alliance. They didn't like the checks and balances of the Roman Republic. They wanted to be in power indefinitely. They asked Cicero to join their alliance, but he refused. They went along without Cicero and formed what is now known as the First Triumvirate. Because they were able to undermine the Senate, this secret alliance led to the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. One year after the First Triumvirate took control, Caesar left for his provinces and another politician filled his role. That politician didn't like Cicero and got him kicked out of the city. Cicero was actually exiled for a year, then he came back, but he was sort of politically sidelined. And then, partly out of frustration with um, the way politics were going at Rome, he really threw himself into writing philosophy, political philosophy, but also philosophy about all sorts of topics, including this work on friendship. And that uh, was going to be very important in the later history um, of Western thought. When Cicero returned to Rome after his year in exile, Rome was in the middle of a civil war. The triumvirate had fractured, and Caesar was battling with his old ally Pompey. Cicero joined Pompey, who was Caesar's adversary, but who was defeated. Then Cicero was pardoned by Caesar and returned to Rome, but this was not a very sort of... uh, not a very comfortable position to be in. Um, When Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March 44, um, Cicero was very excited about that. And he was friends with uh, Brutus and Cassius and uh, others of the assassins. And he was hoping that Rome would return to, you know, the accustomed Republican system and basically rule by the Senate. But in fact, sort of Rome, um, you know, deteriorated further, descended into chaos. And when the so-called Second Triumvirate was formed between Octavian, that's the future Augustus, and Mark Antony and a man uh, called Lepidus, um, Cicero was proscribed. That means a prize was put on his head and he was assassinated in late 43. What was the speech-making culture and what accounts for his powerful abilities? Well, we have to sort of consider that that ancient Rome was largely an oral society. I mean, there was literature, uh, there was some circulation of texts, but of course they had to be copied by hand. There was no media, really. There were obviously no newspapers or, you know, any kind of other me- uh, medium. So communication, I mean, public communication was very oral. And so speaking was incredibly important. So members of the elite, as Cicero was, had to speak 
if they were in the Senate, you know, they had to speak in the Senate or they had to address the people. Um, and they also typically appeared in court. Um, and so there they had to speak. And so being able to speak well was really sort of considered an important part of a person's education and even of a person's character. So they really had this idea that the speech is the man. And if you were a poor speaker, this you know, not only were you probably not going to be terribly successful in court or in politics, but it could also reflect really poorly on your character. Politicians and lawyers spent many years perfecting their speaking skills. Young orators often had professional coaches and trained under established speakers. And they really put a lot of effort into this. For example, Cicero, um, after a few early years of already being quite successful in the courtroom, realized that he was actually ruining his speech because, of course, they were speaking without amplification. So they had to speak, you know, fairly loudly. But you could really, I mean, just like actors or singers today have to be really careful with their voice. So same then. And so Cicero actually took some time out, uh, traveled to Greece and studied with some orators there and was sort of trying to find a way and apparently succeeded in speaking without um, you know, ruining um, his voice. So they, they put a lot of effort into this. What was the context of philosophy at the time? What, what were the other subjects he was treating before we get more specifically into friendship? Philosophy, of course, was a Greek invention or this type of Western philosophy, at least. Um, and the Romans generally sort of... Um, based their own culture very self-consciously on the culture of the Greeks, which was also um, not just sort of imitation, but which was also sort of a little bit, uh, you know, a form of competition. So they wanted to, you know, take whatever they could get from Greek culture, but then ultimately they wanted to do it as well or if possibly better. After Rome conquered Greece in the second century BC, Romans were exposed to a lot of Greek philosophy. It was common practice for Romans to go to Greece to study, and Greek philosophers often traveled to Rome, bringing their philosophies with them, including the ideas of Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and the Stoics. So by the time Cicero is writing, there is really um, a lot of, you know, philosophical learning um, among the elite at Rome, but the writing of philosophy in Latin has only just begun. So there are a few precursors, but it really starts in the 50s BCE on the one hand with Lucretius's famous poem about Epicurean philosophy and with Cicero in the 50s um, writing about political philosophy. So that's his well-known De Republica on the Commonwealth, which to some extent is modeled on Plato's um, Republic, as we call it, um, though it's also very different. A few years later, Cicero began a series of philosophical writings on a wide range of topics. And there he clearly sets out to write a kind of philosophical encyclopedia, i.e. treat all sorts of subfields of philosophy in an effort to bring Greek philosophy to Rome, to his fellow Romans, to educate them in philosophy, maybe send them a philosophical message in this time of political crisis, but also, you know, as being this incredibly self-confident and ambitious, you know, master of Roman, of the Latin language and of Roman literature to create a corpus of 
Latin philosophical writing. And he writes about everything. He writes about ethics. Um, he writes about epistemology. Um, he writes about um, not so much natural philosophy, but about the gods and divination. And then he writes a number of sort of specialist um, ethical treatises. Um, he writes one generally on duties, one on old age, and then this one um, on friendship. The text is arranged as a dialogue between a Roman statesman and his two sons-in-law. The statesman's close friend has just passed away, and his sons-in-law stopped by to see how he was doing. They ask the statesman what he thinks about friendship. So he gives a speech about friendship, um, which is partly based on all the Greek philosophy um, on friendship, especially Aristotle, but is also his own specifically Roman take on it. And he does say that he thinks friendship is basically the best thing a, a human being can have in life. And he says that his own friendship with Scipio was the best thing that happened to him. And now that Scipio is, is dead, it's really the memory of this friendship that, that still keeps him going. Uh, but then he has a very elevated view of friendship, which partly goes back to Aristotle, which says that real friendship can only be between good people. You have to be, you have to have virtue to be a good friend. So, so bad people cannot really be friends. Um, and then he discusses various aspects of this. And then it sort of turns out that even though, um, you know, friendship is this great thing, it's, it's not unproblematic. Um, and there are all sorts of problems with friendship. Now, he does argue that it is natural for human beings to want to be friends and that it arises out of affection. I mean, he really uses the word love. A Latin amor is actually related to amicitia, the word for friendship. So basically, if you, you know, see another person who has all these wonderful qualities, what the Romans would call virtue, you just can't help loving them. I mean, you're just going to feel this affection. And if this affection arises between two people, then they become friends. And it doesn't have to do with what you want to get out of friendship. So it's not a utilitarian thing. It's not what we want to get out of the friend. It's not about what the friend can do for us, but it is really about affection. And it's a natural thing. We just want to have that in human beings as social animals and a life. Even if we could have all the good things in life and we didn't have other people and we didn't have friends, life would not be worth living. It seems like one distinguishing feature of Cicero's writing is to try to suggest that you know, friendship is not just instrumental, as you say. It's not just to sort of, tra it's not transactional. There's some other, you know, virtue-related good involved. That's correct. So in the ancient world, both in Greece and in Rome, friendship is extremely important. So people, you know, talk about friendship a lot. They um, really rely on their friends. But it's also clear that uh, in some ways, um, friendship has maybe not necessarily a transactional um, uh, character 
always, but there is certainly a more practical um, aspect to friendship. I mean, obviously, you know, there can be all sorts of practical aspects to friends. Today, you know, if you have friends who can get you a job or friends will help you out um, if you have any problems. But we have to remember that in, in these kinds of societies, there was far less of a kind of institutional structure um, for all sorts of human needs, like, for example, financial or legal, or, you know, if you're a sick or if you're running into any kind of problems or if, you know, in, you're in politics. So, you know, if you needed to go to court, um, you would ask a friend you know, if you had such friends, but if you were in the Roman elite, you did who to, you know, represent you in court. If you needed to borrow money, I mean, there were no banks, you had to basically borrow it from your friend, you know. Um, so there is this sort of sense of friendship, which also goes with a sense of obligations. There's this sense if they, your friend does something for you, you have to do something for them. And while this is ideally viewed as a so-called a beneficium, a good deed or a favor, and not, you know, something that, you know, you have a right to, there is still a sort of sense that these beneficia, you know, have to be uh, reciprocated. So that's basically the, 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 the background in society. And so Cicero, following other Greek philosophers, is sort of setting out to introduce a, a more high-minded, a more virtue-based, but also a kind of more affection-based um, element into that. Sort of saying, you know, friendship is not just what you think, you know, that you do something for your friend and then he has to do something for you. There is something else involved as well. Friendship was an important topic around the time Cicero was writing this text. A few months earlier, Julius Caesar was assassinated by a group of conspirators. Some of them claimed to be his friend, including Brutus and Cassius. And this has often been, you know, treated as a sort of an enormous case of betrayal. So, for example, in, in Dante's Inferno, Brutus and Cassius are in the deepest circle of hell because they betrayed their friend. And there were clearly people in Rome at the time who were saying the same thing. Um, or followers of Caesar who were his friends and who were not now going to like change their tune just because their friend had been assassinated. And so Cicero is kind of pushing back against that and says, well, you can only be friends with a good person. And he doesn't mention Caesar, but the implication is that, you know, Caesar was not a good person. And he says, you cannot be friends with a tyrant. And you also are not allowed, you know, if your friend is asking you to, to do something bad, this is when you have to break off the friendship. Um, and especially if this involves to doing something unconstitutional, something against the commonwealth. So if you think this gives you a sort of, um, gives you the license to do, you know, evil things, criminal things, because you're allegedly doing them for a friend or you can't oppose your friend, uh, that's just plain wrong. That's not really friendship. What What does he say about um, about honesty and, you know, kind of saying hard things to a friend sometimes? Yeah, so he's very much um, into that. I mean, he's he says that yeah, if you're you're if you're a friend, it's, you really you know it's a kind of tough love. You know, you have to tell 
your friend the truth and you have to give them advice, but you also have to be able to take the truth. So it's not a sort of warm and fuzzy thing in his, um, you know, opinion, but, you know, there's a sort of free exchange, um, you know, of, of, of views and there's a sort of a, a giving of advice which runs a little bit against his previous claim that friendship is really ideally agreement on all matters. So, you know, ideally, all friends would already be agreeing on all matters, and then you wouldn't need that. But I guess there is some acknowledgement that oftentimes you do need that. And it seems like he thinks friendship, the beauty of it is that it helps you reach your own potential uh, for your best self. That's correct. So it sort of, as you were saying, it kind of brings out the best in other people and, and helps them, um, as it were, to, to realize um, their virtues, which goes with a sense that you have in Aristotle and that Cicero very much subscribes to that, that all virtue can only be realized in action. So it's always life is at, at its best is always active, which of course also means it's always social. It's always with other people. And so therefore f- friendship in a way is a sort of an ideal, um, catalyst for this kind of ideally virtuous, active life. Let's now move to uh, its legacy and and kind of um, life through the years. So what what happened to Cicero's writing after his death? What was its reception? Um, and, you know, what's the longer history of Cicero's influence on Western culture, both his broader works, but also this particular text? Right. Not all of his works have survived, but a, a heck of a lot has survived. Uh, so we have more of Cicero, I guess, than any other ancient author. We certainly know more about Cicero's life than any other ancient author because we have 900 letters by him, which like doesn't happen for anybody else. That's just so extraordinary that 900 personal letters yes. survived. Now, how did these get preserved? So, you know ancient works were um, copied and recopied as manuscripts. And if they're lucky, they make it into the Middle Ages. And sometimes people in the Middle Ages are very much into them. And sometimes they're not so much and they're just lying around in some monasteries and they're only rediscovered um, in the Renaissance when people were really getting into um, antiquity Again, um, so different works of Cicero uh, fared differently. Um, in the case of the work on friendship, it was actually um, popular in the Middle Ages. And um, authors in the Middle Ages who were writing about friendship, um, but now from a Christian perspective, were using this as a kind of model to, as it were, rewrite it in a, in a Christian way. Um, and then obviously, once we come to the Renaissance, where people were especially interested in kinds of philosophy that, that were practical, in political philosophy, in ethics, and sort of advice about, um, you know, personal interactions. Um, so they were also very much interested in uh, the topic of friendship. But generally speaking, the, the philosophical works of Cicero were extremely important in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance until basically Greek literature and the Greek language were sort of rediscovered in the West and people learned Greek again and started reading 
uh, Greek literature and Greek philosophy and, you know, rediscovered Plato and Aristotle in the original, um, at which point, you know, Cicero's philosophy um, kind of took a nosedive in reputation um, and has really, in a way, only been rediscovered seriously by philosophers in the last 25 years or so. Could you tell us about how Latin literature, and Cicero in particular, became tightly embedded in elite Western educational models? It all already grows out of ancient education, which was very text-based. So throughout antiquity, throughout the Middle Ages, into the modern period, education was basically like reading a text, often learning it by heart and discussing it, discussing its grammar, discussing its content. And, um, you know, school teachers are, you know, of course, sort of conservative, but they also want something that's, you know, canonical and that's sort of typical. And um, Cicero, and to a lesser extent, Julius Caesar, their writings and their prose became early on, I mean, the, the kind of standard of Latin. The Latin language had been developing still, you know, a, a living language develops all the time. But their prose and their style became so influential that this became the canonical way of writing Latin. Um, so the Latin that kids learn today, but that kids have been learning for 2,000 years is basically sort of abstracted from Cicero's style. And what happened is that then, as it were, Latin became fossilized. So this was the Latin that continued to be written even when the language continued developing. And at some point, that language was Latin anymore. It was already, you know, French and Italian and Spanish or whatever. But what was being written and what was being written in the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance and what was being learned by kids in school and what was the sort of lingua franca of Europe was that Latin that had been the Latin of um, Cicero. So this dead language, but it was the language that was being used while the living language had developed into something totally different. For more than a thousand years, Cicero's Latin was the lingua franca of Europe, uniting political, literary, religious, and scientific communities. For a really long time, elite Europeans communicated with each other using Latin. Latin's importance lasted into the 19th and even 20th centuries. The last significant scientific work published in Latin was Giuseppe Peano's 1889 work on set theory. And it wasn't until 1965 that the Catholic Church allowed liturgy to be conducted in languages other than Latin. So since it was perceived, you know, at the time and soon after to be the sort of high point of Latin and of Latin style, that's the Latin that remained. And, you know, while medieval Latin is a little bit different and, you know, you can take courses in medieval Latin and it's not exactly the classical Latin, but at the end of the day, if you've learned classical Latin, you can read medieval Latin or Renaissance Latin or early modern Latin. It's always the same Latin because it's Cicero's Latin. And so it wasn't just about the uh, content but it was also about the form, that this was sort of considered Latin. What is the current state of the study of Latin, the learning of Latin, and the use of Latin as a, as a language? 
I think it is the case that, um, you know, Latin and just the study of the ancient world in general has of, very often been pronounced dead. And then it turned out that this is absolutely not the case and that there are, you know, generations of more people, including fairly young kids who get very enthusiastic about that. What Cicero says about friendship, that it's not instrumental for anything, but it's sort of a good in itself. Um, you know, I think the study of the ancient world and the study of Latin, it's the same thing. I mean, if you want it to be instrumental for something else, I mean, you can come up with all sorts of narratives about that. But in the end, I think um, you have to sort of um, see it as a good in its own right. But but I think, um, you know, it, it is still st going strong and it's going strong around the world. And for example, one thing that is very has been very interesting to me is that there seems to be a real rise of interest in Greek and Latin and in um, Greco-Roman antiquity in the Asian world. I mean, we get more and more um, students from, from China, from Korea, from Hong Kong, um, you know, whether... You know, some are Asian Americans, many are, um, you know, immigrants, or they're people who just come, you know, to the United States to go to college. And I think we're going to see, um, you know, a, a lot of developments in, in those parts of the world. It can be easy to overlook the power of friendship, especially if the term is reduced to a connection on social media. But Cicero reminds us of the importance of genuine friendship. He shows us how being a friend is more than just getting along. It is a sharing of one's core values and virtues. And in our lonely, anxious time, understanding and developing friendship is more critical than ever. This is really the text that we now have from the Western tradition to tell us um, that friendship is important, that it is one of the most important things in life, and that it is not just the sort of quotidian, everyday thing that you might think it is, but that it has to do with what it means to be human and also what it means to be a good person. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.